0: Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Sally Holland, Children's Commissioner for Wales, meets Aaron Jones, founder of Say Something In. Aaron will discuss his own experience of learning the Welsh language, as well as his speciality, accelerated language learning, particularly in the context of minority languages.
1: Hello, Shumai, uh, as we say in Wales here, which means, how are you? Hello, and uh, I'm Sally Holland. I'm the Children's Commissioner for Wales. And I'm delighted to be introducing this podcast, which is part of the How We Will Learn series. Um, I'm really thrilled to be talking today to Aaron Jones, who I'm going to introduce in a minute, um, all about learning Welsh and the Welsh language. Um, And, you know, I've got a real interest in this as the Children's Commissioner for Wales. I've got a personal interest and a professional interest. So personally, I'm not Welsh. I'm Scottish. Um, I moved to Wales as an adult and learned Welsh as an adult and now use it in my everyday life and workplace. And I've brought up a bilingual family um, and I use it professionally um, every day with my colleagues and with children in Wales. Now, it's my role to protect and promote children's human rights in Wales, including Article 30 of the United Nations Convention for the Rights of the Child, which says you have the right to speak your own language and follow your family's way of life. Now, this article was specifically included in this international convention to support indigenous and minority languages and cultures. And, um, you know, after centuries of decline um, in, the Welsh, in the Welsh language, its usage is actually increasing in Wales. That's great news. And in 2021, nearly 30 percent of the Welsh population report they can speak Welsh. All children learn it in school and about a fifth of children attend schools where Welsh is the main language. And it's thought to be the oldest language in Britain that's in use today and has a rich written and spoken history, especially through poetry. So um, my guest on this podcast is Aaron Jones, who founded and runs a hugely successful language learning company, which began with the Welsh language and the Say Something in Welsh Language course. Croeso, Aaron, as we say in Wales, which means welcome, Aaron.
2: Di al thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. I would like to start by asking you to explain how your language courses work um, and, and sort of what sort of feedback have you had from learners about them?
2: The feedback, for, first of all, is pretty positive. Uh, particularly people focus on their, their spoken confidence um, and they become conscious of the fact that they can, they can say quite a lot of things fairly early in the process, which creates the confidence to, to carry on learning. We're almost entirely uh, an audio-driven course, and what we're really trying to do all the time is, is keep people under enough pressure to trigger neurological change. So it's sort of a little bit like high-intensity interval training for languages.
1: That sounds like a really interesting way to learn. So it's sort of very intense. Is it, is it very frequent? Do people have to do it every day?
2: That's actually one of the fascinating things. There's this sort of um, very widely accepted myth in in language acquisition that you need to do a certain amount every day. And and that simply isn't how, how memory formation works. What we gain as a result of the, the high levels of effort while you're doing it is we have much greater flexibility in terms of when you do it. We've tested up to you know, about a year and a half in between intensive sessions and the, the learning process doesn't get interrupted. You, you pick up pretty much where you left off. So yeah, we, we, do, we, we do help you work up a, a decent neurological sweat, but then you get those early wins that make you realize that it's worth doing that
1: that's fascinating and i think you know we want to explore some more myths about language learning as we go through this podcast so i think we've all got beliefs haven't we about um, whether people are good or bad at learning languages and at what age you can learn languages and, and that kind of thing but first of all i think that you know the million dollar question for those of us living in countries with min- with very small languages minority languages and what people often ask me is why should people learn a minority language? And as people often say, after all, nearly every Welsh speaker speaks English too. So why would you need to bother learning Welsh?
2: So I would suggest that we have, we have two reasons to learn another language. One is to facilitate communication and the other is to facilitate human connection. And now the truth of it is if your only drive is to facilitate communication, you really have very little need anymore to learn any language. We've, we've got translation protocols. We've got professional translators available. There, there are always um, simultaneous translators running in, in any sort of large-scale meeting in Europe and, and so on. So if we're saying, well, really, we only learn a language in order to facilitate communication, then we probably don't need to bother at all anymore. But then this other thing of facilitating human connection, every single time you, you see somebody switch from an understood language to a first language, you see a shift in perception, you see a shift in connection. I had a friend of mine once said very brilliantly that um, when he was speaking English, it was like watching black and white television. When he switches into Welsh, the color comes on for him. So if somebody communicates with him in English, you're going to get all the information. But if somebody communicates with him in Welsh, you start to inhabit a, a different universe. And, and the strength of connection you get when you learn a minority language is dramatically greater than when you learn a, a, a large global language. If you learn French, if you learn French absolutely brilliantly and go to France and expect anybody to be particularly pleased by that, you're going to be quite disappointed because it's just normal. We don't spend a lot of time really congratulating people who learn English. But as you will have experienced, if you come to Wales and learn Welsh, then we are delighted by that. And the the strength of the connections that you form is, is utterly different. So I I would suggest that if people are looking to have richer and wider and deeper and more interesting human connections, that actually learning minority languages is where they ought to be.
1: I couldn't agree more. I have to say on that that reception that you get in Wales, and I'm sure the same in other parts of the world, if you've made the effort, to learn the indigenous language. My only other two languages are French and Welsh and um, my French isn't isn't that great. And I, I, you know, and I have to say that, you know, I don't necessarily get much congratulations in France, but in Wales, um, you know, I do feel for me that it, people open their hearts when they see the effort I've made to learn Welsh. But also for me, it open opens other doors too, cultural doors. So I get a real insight into some very specific parts of Welsh culture that are done through the Welsh language. Specific types of poetry and singing, for example, aren't there, that are quite unique to Wales that would be quite hard, don't really work in translation to English. You know, cultures
2: and societies are are fascinatingly complex things, Um, and it's not always easy to to pinpoint how something is different. But there is a a very very considerable difference between attitudes and thoughts and patterns and ideas in, in Welsh-speaking Wales and in English-speaking Wales. And we've seen this in things like voting patterns, for example. Um, Welsh-speaking Wales broadly was a very, very strong Remain in Europe vote in, in, in 2016. So you've got genuine cultural differences that are driven by just having access to these different kinds of ways of thinking about things. Uh, it's, it's quite common if you're a Welsh speaker to have more sources of information than just the BBC because you're, you're looking for other things that are through the medium of Welsh and they tend to be coming at things from, from different angles. There's a, a fascinating and endless wealth of difference to tap into when you, when you learn particularly minority language.
1: I wonder if you think there might also be other benefits like economic benefits for example I see a lot of people selling goods online that are bilingual or just in Welsh and, and intellectual benefits as well you know I, I'm pretty confident I've read somewhere that being bilingual or multilingual is, is good for your general cognitive skills.
2: Yeah there's an increasing amount of work in this direction it, it it seems very likely so far that active bilingualism or multilingualism helps delay the onset of alzheimers for example it also seems generally to be cognitive positive it, it it's something that is is likely to be helping create other kinds of of abilities so you're using certain parts of the brain you're leaning more heavily on on things like your your working memory if you're code switching between languages and and we do have a broad understanding that really the way fundamentally the way the brain works is on a use it or lose it basis so if you're multilingual and you use all your languages, you're, you're using it much more. So that's, that's going to be a good thing. And also it does interesting mindset things. If you're bilingual, the idea of learning a third language seems reasonably straightforward because you know that the process works. You know that your brain is capable of this. If you're monolingual, the idea of operating genuinely confidently in another language feels faintly fictional. You, you can see that there are people who do it. That you find it very hard to believe that, that you might be able to join their ranks. So I think there's something uniquely interesting about language acquisition, almost like a sort of base camp for, for, for all intellectual development. If you discover you can do this quite remarkable thing and, and acquire a new language, then I think you end up with entirely different confidence towards, towards everything to do with how the brain works.
1: I love the idea of a base camp, you know, for other intellectual adventures. I think that's really exciting. And I suppose to an international audience, our, our sort of perception, perhaps, as people based in the United Kingdom of bilingualism or multilingualism being an exciting thing might seem a bit unusual because, of course, the vast majority of the world, people are multilingual. But here in Anglophone countries, we tend to... We are often monolingual and often many of us have a self-perception that we're no good at learning languages. People often say to me, oh, it's great you've learnt Welsh, but I couldn't do it. I'm no good at learning languages. Do you think as Anglophone nations are particularly poor at accepting the joys of multilingualism or are we actually poorer at learning languages?
2: I'd want to steer away from suggesting that there's anything inherently poorer about anglophone nations i think fundamentally what's happening there is that people who grow up in in a monolingual environment in a monolingual english environment they pay a very high price for the fact that they speak a a hugely dominant global language so because it is entirely possible for them to operate in every sphere of their lives without needing another language they tend not to do it we have an educational system which is willing to accept the fact that most people who study a language at school will not become confident conversational speakers of that language. And therefore, that door is sort of left largely closed. It's a high price to pay. One of the favorite descriptions I've read of multilingualism is that every extra language opens an extra window on the world. So if you're sitting there with, with five or six languages, you've got five or six windows, you've got five or six views, you're engaging with the world, you're gaining extra levels of wealth of experience that are, are tougher to acquire for somebody who's just got that one window. And I think it's a very high price to pay, particularly because there's no question whatsoever, there is nothing inherently inferior about a monolingual's ability to acquire a new language. The problem is to do with expectations and teaching structures and, and what we think is okay. If you're lucky enough to grow up in an environment where three or four languages are spoken all the time, you'll have three or four languages. If you don't, you won't, but your ability to acquire them and as an adult is, is still there. It is genuinely a, a possible thing. If you do the right things, it can happen quite quickly.
1: Yes, and I think that's very encouraging to people because I think a lot of people will think, oh, if I didn't learn a language as a child, children can soak up information, they can soak up languages. I wouldn't be able to do it as an adult. And I have to say that as a young monolingual uh, person, as a young adult, um, I would have been amazed to think that I could operate bilingually, and, but delighted that I have been able to. And I think that um, you're very encouraging and the success of your language courses are, are very encouraging but you know you mentioned then about how you know the how, how some of us who grew up in monolingual environments you know have to get the right support then through our education system to acquire the joys of of multilingualism so i'm, I'm particularly interested in some of the techniques that you've been using mainly to teach adults how could they transfer to our school system? And are they very different from how we learn languages traditionally in schools?
2: The first thing that needs to be said there is that from what we now know of how the brain responds, the cutting edge stuff in, in areas uh, like neuroplasticity and, and the, you know, the general studies of neuroscience, uh, there's a, a writer called John Medina who writes popular science books about neuroplasticity. He says quite nicely at one point in one of his books called Brain Rules that if we were now to try and design an environment to be the worst possible learning environment for the human brain, it would look a lot like a classroom. It's a brutally difficult environment to get successful learning to happen. So we're kind of starting on the back foot there in terms of language acquisition. However, I think there's a huge amount of, um, of potential In the idea of the flipped classroom, and and, and this, I think, is is gathering pace, that if we can find ways for children to acquire memories and and develop contextual content and structure, not just for languages, but for, for other forms of knowledge, if they can be doing that outside the classroom, and the classroom then becomes the context in which they engage in playful use of their information, then I think we could we you know, we, we don't have to remain bound by the fact that it doesn't naturally work very well. We can build structures that will play much better with what is available to us in schools. You know, the societal interaction in schools is is fantastic. There's huge welfare, there, a huge amount we can tap into. I was very proud once I was up in, in Scotland a while ago and talking to some people and, and they were full of praise for how well Wales does um, early years play in education. And I think that one of the things we really need to do is bring that further through, that, that we should have more play for longer. And as long as we're making sure that the children are accessing the information, which can now clearly be done in lots of different ways than simply in a classroom, that's, that's where I think the magic could be.
1: I really agree with that, Um, as you might expect. I'm a big fan of play as the Children's Commissioner, but also learning through play and through doing, rather than just trying to receive information. And actually, you know, we've learned a lot during the pandemic, haven't we, about different ways of delivering education. And I've been reading recently about the flipped classroom and how we might enable our children to receive information outside of the classroom, um, perhaps through audio visual methods that they can do in their own time and at their own speed at home. But then the classroom will be about the experience, the interaction and the practice which I think is very similar to what you're saying and actually very exciting. And I presume that those ways of learning could apply to those techniques you're talking about don't just apply to languages.
2: No, no, I, I think you're right. One of the things we're doing at the moment, we we haven't been a very natural fit for for children's learning because we, we've operated via sort of set MP3 files um, and they're around about half an hour. And that's half an hour of really quite challenging neurological effort and and it's just too long for most children um, we do see some great examples of parents working with their children to break it up into smaller bits but we've now been working on a on a different approach which will which will operate as a kind of streaming environment and we're hoping to do some practices in uh, to run some kind of pilot projects in in Welsh schools next autumn about what it would look like if if classes just did maybe five minutes of, of this kind of work at the beginning of a lesson. There's a fascinating point. When you when you take responsibility for the formation of memories, this is something, you know, I, I speak with incredible respect for every single teacher because I, I think they operate in such a challenging environment and, and they put so much hard work into it. And yet the, the underlying truth, structural truth there, is that because of the limits of, of the classroom, we really use the classroom as an environment in which to share information. And sharing information is a very, very different process to creating memories. And what we do, we broadly, we share the information, and we then leave the children with the responsibility of forming their own memories. Um, And of course, most of our children are not reading the cutting-edge research in in memory formation that's coming out of studies of neuroplasticity. Um, We shouldn't be expecting them to be experts in memory formation. and, And they're not. And we let them go and do things. That we're starting to discover aren't effective. Like multiple readings of a text, this is not an effective way to to improve your memory of the text. Um, highlighting things is not an effective way, unless it's your first step to a, a fuller approach to to build memories. Simply highlighting things in a text does almost nothing to to create extra memory. I've said that um, I've said that in, uh, in in lectures to third-year undergraduates who are facing their finals quite soon, and they they go they go very pale. Bless them, but. As we start now to to shift on this, I think as as educators in general start to take more responsibility, not just for sharing the information but for creating the memories, we start to to move towards something which could be dramatically better. Um, and I think we can use the same core systems as we're using with language for for any other form of knowledge and if the children are finding ways to acquire the knowledge outside of the classroom in a way that we can see what they're doing we can see if it's working we can see how it's all going but then the classroom is this place for co-creation then i think we can get to something that you know there's a there's a tipping point at some point it becomes not just a bit better it becomes transformationally
1: better I find all that very exciting and actually very timely for us in Wales, because as you'll be aware, Aaron, we're in the midst of introducing a new curriculum here in Wales. And it's got very exciting aims, if we can carry it off. It aims to equip our children for the society and economy of the future. It's got an emphasis on creativity, co-created learning that you've been talking about. And in languages specifically, the plans for the new curriculum are that there is a potential to, for children to acquire mini qualifications in languages, so bite-sized achievements, rather than having to either sit a full-blown GCSE or A-level or nothing or have nothing to show for their language learning. I'm wondering if that sort of approach fits with what you've been saying about, you know, this that sort of everyday practice of language learning in bite-sized pieces. And sort of beyond that, you know, what would you advise us to do next in Wales and beyond, um, you know, internationally um, on how we can best build on your learning in this area?
2: You know, it's funny. I, I think sometimes we tend to believe that very large steps forward have to be inherently complicated. And yet for me, the truth of it is that when you find the right trigger, it can often be very, very simple. And I think this idea of bite-sized qualifications is absolutely brilliant. I think what it will do is free up a lot of the stuff which ends up making language learning incredibly boring and and, and a very hard slog because you know you've got to have all these different bits and all these different areas to get through this qualification. If we find a way to start valuing a child who can speak five or six sentences really confidently in another language and then goes on to a different journey with a different language, I think that is going to start to have a dramatic impact on how people feel about languages. I think if we can get to the stage, for example, where somebody who has done seven years of education in in the Welsh system comes out at 16 with seven different languages in which they have half a dozen to a dozen confident sentences that they can really fire back and forth, that they have fun with then, you know, those people are going to, be, the idea of actually pushing through to, to get to conversational confidence in, in any of those languages is going to seem so much more achievable and worthwhile. And they're going to have so much more belief in their own capacity to acquire and to play with language. I, I think that that single little shift to measuring something that's much, much smaller than a large scale exam, I think that could be transformational.
1: That's really exciting. And I'll make sure I share that vision with um, our government here. But I think you're also advising and supporting educators here in Wales as well on on how to move forward, which is is exciting in itself. Obviously, it's been such a
2: tough couple of years now for everybody everywhere. And... I think it's kind of, you know, tricky when you start looking for the positives, it's a little bit tricky because it can very quickly sound as if you're not recognising the the huge amounts of of pain that the last couple of years have have caused globally. But I do think that we're seeing very, very, very widespread signs that it is going to operate in a lot of different fields as a kind of ignition event for us. That we've been shaken out of, of patterns that it was very hard to question. And I think now it's increasingly easy to question almost anything. Do we actually really need to do that seems to be a kind of a global question now. And I think that makes it makes huge change suddenly possible. And I think with education, we're going to hit tipping points. I love educators. I love education. It, it's, it's probably the great passion of my life. And yet the truth of it is we, we've changed virtually nothing in the last hundred years or so. We've gone from a system where education really, primarily the social driver there was keeping our children out of being forced into work, keeping them out of mines, keeping them out of quarries, keeping them from going up chimneys. And we created this this incredibly valuable new idea of childhood that really it saved our children from being exploited. But we haven't moved on from that. We send them off at the end of their education into, into a working environment, which is still very challenging and doesn't give everybody the, the fullness of experience that they should be having as human beings. So if we can now, if we can say, right, well, we, we did that, we got them out of the mines, but now let's get them into a stage where where education will absolutely create endless human wealth for the rest of their lives then that, I think, you know, inevitably triggers the wider societal changes that that could be so glorious for humanity. I think this pandemic has kicked us very, very, very hard. And I think lots of people are now responding to that in, in, in fascinatingly creative ways. And I feel extraordinarily optimistic about the future.
1: That's really exciting and probably a good place for us to come towards the end of this podcast, Aaron. I couldn't agree more with with what you've been saying. I'm excited by some of the things I've learned from you today. I agree the pandemic has hit children hard as well as adults and all generations, but children have responded in such an exciting way as well. And um, I listened to over 40,000 children in Wales They've been up to amazing things, learning all sorts of interesting languages that they wouldn't have had the chance to learn in school and other skills. You know, I've been learning the ukulele. I've been learning how to do dry stone walling at the bottom of my garden. There's no end to the creativity and potential in all of the things you're describing. I'm just going to sum up some of the things that I've learned, I think, today, Aaron, I mean, I think I've learned that we've been tending to teach languages in the UK and elsewhere using methods that don't really fit with what research tells us how the brain works. And I think, you know, very encouraging to many of us. You know, I've learned that everyone can learn additional languages, you know, and it's not just small children with their spongy brains. And that there are great reasons to learn languages, you know, social connectiveness, as well as just pure communication, cognitive skills, cultural gains even economic gains, you know, it's clear that your techniques have a great potential for transforming how we learn additional languages as children and as adults and have implications for other fields of learning. And I suppose with both of us having such a fondness for Welsh as a language, I think you've defended well that there's a good reason for learning minority languages too. And we shouldn't just concentrate on the top uh, five or 10 of languages in the world. I wonder if we should finish, Aaron, by just sharing with anyone listening some of our favourite words in Welsh. I think mine are bendigedig, just because it's a nice sounding word and it means wonderful. And I think this podcast has been bendigedig. Mm-hmm. And I also really like igamogam, which means zigzag, just because it's got a lovely sound to it. What, what, what do you like, Aaron?
2: I'd also adore igamogam. Uh, there's a, a Welsh children's programme called Igam Ogam, which my kids used to absolutely love. Uh, I find it very hard to get the theme tune out of my head, even today. I will go for, I'll go for Spigoglis, because I just love saying it. Spigoglis is the really rather mundane spinach, uh, but it seems much, much more exciting in Welsh. And I'll go for Pendramonogol, because that's a real challenge to say. Pendramonogol. And it really sort of means, you know, absolutely out of control and confused and mixed up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good word to mix yourself up with and then be able to describe what you're doing. So, yeah, Pendramonogol and Spigoglis.
1: Great. So, there are some things for people to start to get their tongues around. So, I'm just going to finish by saying, Diochenvar, thank you very much. And it's var. goodbye from me for now.
2: Hoylvar, Sally. Diochenvar, Yauniti.
0: Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.